You'll have a conversation, you might be talking about your faith, and they'll smile and nod. And you'll kind of get the sense that typically that person listening to you is is really happy for you. I mean, they're glad you found God. They're glad that this church community you belong to is meaningful. It gives you kind of value and purpose. But for them, it's, it's just not really all that interesting. And any of the questions or follow-up questions that you throw out in the conversation to try to get traction uh, don't really go anywhere. So it would be like if I'm not really interested in the sport of cricket, and if somebody was really passionate about cricket, I would let them tell me about it. But like, frankly, I don't care. And I'm just being nice as I'm listening to you tell me about this passion. Now, take that to the topic that should capture our attention the most. And this is why it's so concerning, right? We should all care about the true source of life and and of love. And and so this is why when Christians approach apathyism, it can be disorienting, it can be confusing, it can be frustrating. If you feel that kind of sense of, uh, why isn't this conversation going anywhere? That's probably a strong indication that you're encountering this apathyism. Welcome to the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Garrick Bailey. In each episode of this serious but light-hearted podcast, Timothy Paul Jones and I explore evidences for the truth of Christianity. And along the way, we even talk about movies, music, and culture. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and receiving shirts, mugs, and more, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Apologetics Podcast, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. Well, welcome to this episode of the Apologetics Podcast. Today, we've got a great episode with Kyle Bashirs, the author of the book, Apathyism. We're going to be talking about apathyism, we're going to talk about Mormonism, and we're going to talk about theological shoegazing. So, this could be a great episode talking about all of those things. But before we get to those things, we have something else that we need to do, and that is Indiana Jones and the Raiders of Church History. This time when we bring artifacts from church history and we place them into combat against one another to see which one will win. And so what I've got today is something that is going to win simply because of who wrote about it. You just can't go up against this individual. And that is, it is Augustine. And so what I have brought is from Confessions, book two, written around the year 400, is one of Augustine's pairs. And so I am going to, whatever you have, I am going to throw a pair at it. If you will remember the story, this is a great story that Augustine tells in Confessions, in which he's trying to reveal the depth of his own iniquity by talking about how one time he and his friends, they carried off a large load of pears 
others and not to eat for themselves, but they gave them to the pigs after barely tasting, he said, some of them. And he said, doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. Such was my heart, O God, such was my heart. In other words, he didn't steal these things because he wanted them, because he needed them, even because they tasted great. He had other pears that were better. But rather, he stole for the sake of just stealing, and that was the darkness and the iniquity of his heart. So since St. Augustine is involved, I'm not sure anything that can possibly beat this, because I am throwing one of St. Augustine's pears at whatever you bring. That's right. And to really add to that, not only did St. Augustine write about it, but then Petra, years later, made a song about it. My artifact is also extremely famous, and it was written by an, a very important author because it was in the Bible. My artifact is from the Bible. So I'm just saying, St. Augustine's pretty awesome, but he didn't write any of the Bible. So I bring to you today, Timothy, the heads, that's right, plural, the heads of St. John the Baptist. You might be asking, but Garrick, As far as I know, John the Baptist only had one head. That's true. That is true. He only had one head. But there are about eight relics, artifacts in existence that claim to be the head of John the Baptist. The first one I found, which is really what just kind of sealed the deal on bringing this one. The first one is in a Gothic cathedral in northern France that was built specially to house the relics of John the Baptist. And so this particular head was apparently brought back from Constantinople in the early 1200s by a crusader, right? we got to figure out how to post a picture of this, Timothy. It's a head You can see it, a skull, deteriorated face that is kind of encased in a gold platter to kind of symbolize the silver platter that John the Baptist's head was served up on. Of course, the original silver platter at one point was said to be owned and then lost and whatnot. So the legend has it that the original silver platter made it to Constantinople, but it had to be sold by the crusaders in order to pay for his trip back. (laughs) So they eventually built this really weird gold platter that has fun symbols and shields and crests and the sign of the and the symbol of the Trinity on it and a head that is encased in the middle of it, which you can see some of this really creepy face. But then there's also one in the Basilica of St. Sylvester in Rome that you can see. And then there's another head in Munich that's actually (laughs) wrapped in cloth and and like heavily decorated with gems. So you can't actually see a face. And then there's another one in a mosque in Damascus. Same way. It's a head-shaped item wrapped in a lot of cloth. But I'm going with the original one that's in this sweet gold platter that I could use as a shield or I could throw at you like a sharp saucer disc, something like that. I could easily repel the pear of St. Augustine, which at this point would be much more like pear sauce, but you know, whatever. (laughs) 
Yeah, so we'll, yeah, we could throw the pears at one another. So we're, basically, we've degenerated to the fact of throwing pears and and heads at one another. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so there we go. I don't know. This is kind of a draw because it's a it's a dead head and a it's, rotten pear. It's, <laughs> it's the another. whole thing is super ridiculous at this point. Welcome to this episode of the Apologetics Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. And today we have with us Kyle Bashirs. Kyle Bashirs is a campus pastor at Mars Hill Church in Mobile, Alabama. He earned his PhD at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, an amazing place, by the way, to earn your PhD. No one in this room is biased right now, but just, just to let you know, we think it's a great place to earn your PhD. He also teaches religion classes at the University of Mobile. He is the author author of Apatheism, How We Share When They Don't Care. And that's mainly the book we're going to be talking about today from B&H Academic, Apatheism, How to Share When They Don't Care. But he's also the author of 40 Questions About Mormonism, and we'll talk a little bit about that one as well. Thank you so much for being with us today. Welcome, Kyle. Yeah, thanks, guys, for having me. Well, we have to begin by asking a particular question, and it is one of the most important questions that we ask on this program. And that question is, if you could be part of any rock and roll band in the entire history of rock and roll, what band would that be and what would you be doing in that band? So this may seem so obscure and maybe even unsatisfactory, but my all-time favorite band is Starflyer 59. I would love to be in that band playing drums. I've been on a roll And when I hit the ground I hit the ground running It's taking its toll I just love the music. It's kind of this mid-90s shoegaze synthy pop and they've just been going at it since the early 1990s i think they just put out another album last year so i think maybe it's an acquired taste for some people the brother of the lead was in another band called joy electric if people are familiar with that like era of music so there's some cross collaboration there but it's the only music i can listen to to fall asleep, to study, to jam out in the car. It's everything for me as far as music's concerned. So if they would ever let me in their band, which they shouldn't, I would <laughs> take them up on the offer. So let's talk about your book, Apatheism. So first off, just let our listeners know, what is apatheism? Why on earth did you write a book about it? And why does it even matter? What are we even talking about when we talk about apatheism? Yeah, great question. So the term's a bit intuitive. You have two words smashed together, apathy and theism. So the way I define apatheism in the book is when a person believes that questions about God are unimportant, and they feel that way as well. So this is something that affects us holistically. We just don't find questions like, 
who is God or does God exist? And if God does exist, what does that mean? If he doesn't, what does that mean? Those types of questions are just uninteresting to people that hold apatheism. And because of that, or in response to, there's a feeling of indifference towards him as well. It's this kind of listless shrug of the shoulders when God comes up in conversations. And this is different than other positions we might intuitively want to associate with apatheism, such as like agnosticism or atheism. So the one thing a theist has in common with an atheist is they find God questions interesting, or they at least find them important, right? Even the most ardent new atheists like Richard Dawkins has carved out an entire career talking about God, at least from his perspective, God's non-existence. But apathyism says, well, those kinds of conversations don't really interest me. I find them irrelevant. They're not very important. And as our culture is becoming increasingly secular and distracted and comforted with all sorts of amenities in life, it's not so much that Christianity is being challenged in disbelief in God as it is apathetic belief toward him. And so I felt compelled to start the kind of conversation I think Christians need to have is, well, how do we approach apathyism? Is there apathyism in the church? Are we apathetic towards God? And, and how might you engage your apathyistic neighbor with the gospel? So it's sort of like, if we're to think of an analogy here, it's sort of like apathyists are like somebody who stands there on the stage as a musician, gazing at their shoes and just playing their music without much energy. And atheists are kind of like these people, the bands like I watch and the bands I listen to that are screaming, jumping around the stage the entire time, completely energetic about it. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like that. Yeah, exactly. And ironically, I did listen to a lot of Starflyer 59 while I was writing the apathyist music right there. Even though they're theists, there's an apathy. That's right. Kyle, you made a comment about how you think that apathyism is a increasingly greater challenge in our current context than a disbelief in God. Is that because you think that there are simply more folks who are apathyists that just don't care than there are folks who disbelieve? Or is there something particular about the nature of apathyism that you think makes it a greater challenge to evangelism and Christianity than atheism? Yeah, so it's actually really hard to identify sociologically if there are, is a lot of apathyism in a culture, because when people take polls about belief in God, they're not asking about how people feel about the beliefs, they're just asking what they believe. And so we, again, we would be tempted to say, oh, if there's a rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those that have no beliefs in God, but may still be spiritual or something, then we would say, well, that's where the apathyism is. And sure, there's probably quite a bit of apathyism there, but somebody can identify with some kind of religious tradition and yet still not really care about questions related to God, right? So there's a, a really famous article that I would recommend listeners read to kind of introduce themselves to this conversation of apathyism written by a guy named Jonathan Rauch in 2003 for the Atlantic Monthly called Let It Be. And in that article, the author describes himself as a Jewish man and yet also an atheist and yet also an apatheist. And so you, you would think, how can you hold all three of those things together? And well, 
he lays his case out for not only why you could hold to some kind of religious identity, but not care about belief in God. So I'm not quite sure if it's because there's so much apathyism. And you're right to say maybe it has something more to do with the nature of apathyism itself. And this is why I make kind of a bold statement in the book and repeat it often in interviews and in conversations like this, that I find apathyism to be a greater challenge to evangelism than atheism and agnosticism. And the reason is apathy drains the power of interest in gospel conversations. So even though you will disagree strongly with an atheist on their position about God, at least they're willing to have a conversation about those questions. But apathyists just aren't going to care at all. So we've been trained as believers to approach indifference in a specific way that presumes that the other person wants to have those kinds of conversations. But we can't presume that with apathyism. And so when you do encounter somebody that just doesn't care, we're kind of left scratching our heads, rubbing our chins and wondering, where do we go from here? It's almost like that apathy is a non-starter for kind of the classic conversation you would have with unbelief. How can one tell if they are face-to-face or in the presence of an apathyist? Is that the proper term, apathyist? Is that, that's, that's, uh, does that... That work is that what we're going with? Yeah, or theological <laughs> shoegazer. I mean, that's another one. <laughs> that's that's a, lot too, more, yeah. a lot more syllables. <laughs> <laughs> Apathyism is, I think people are just making up terms, and um, this happens to be one of them. But yeah, you'll know because you'll have a conversation, you might be talking about your faith, and they'll smile and nod, and you'll kind of get the sense that typically that person listening to you is is really happy for you. I mean, they're glad you found God, they're glad that. This church community you belong to is meaningful. It gives you kind of value and purpose. But for them, it's it's just not really all that interesting. And any of the questions or follow-up questions that you throw out in the conversation to try to get traction uh, don't really go anywhere. So it would be like if I'm not really interested in the sport of cricket, and if somebody was really passionate about cricket, I would let them tell me about it. But like, frankly, I don't care. And I'm just being nice as I'm listening to you tell me about this passion. Now, take that to the topic that should capture our attention the most. And this is why it's so concerning, right? We should all care about the true source of life and and of love. And, And so this is why when Christians approach apathyism, it can be disorienting. It can be confusing. It can be frustrating. If you feel that kind of sense of, oh, why isn't this conversation going anywhere? That's probably a strong indication that you're encountering this apathyism. I feel like I've been in those type of conversations with folks that I'd even call believers, right? Where I don't know how we usually get, well, I I feel like usually a question is answered and I begin to answer a question, but as soon as it requires a certain level of attention or thought, or if it has a deeper theological underpinning to it, that the person kind of goes into that same mode. Now, that could just mean that I'm an extremely boring person, right? And that just anytime I talk about anything, eyes glaze over. But I'm not talking about my children here, which is where it's certainly the case. Believers who seem to kind of go into the same type of mode anytime you begin to get under the surface of their Christian faith and belief. And I'm just wondering if if there's a spectrum of apathyism, some that would cross borders of believer, unbeliever, whatnot. I, I shouldn't, it was just a thought. 
Yeah, no, it's a great thought. And one that I think you're hitting on an important point to define exactly what do we mean when we say apathyism? Because for the longest time, the way that we envision belief is sort of oscillating on a spectrum between naturalism and supernaturalism. So this is the content of one's belief. And if you hold to materialism, if you hold to naturalism, if you deny the supernatural, you're going to be an atheist. If you believe in the supernatural, if you believe God's existence, you're going to be a theist. And then somewhere in the middle is agnosticism, right? But what that doesn't take into consideration is how do we feel about those beliefs? So you can deny God's existence and not care about questions related to him. And you could assume God's existence, but still not really care about questions related to him. So it's not so much where do you fit along that spectrum between naturalism and supernaturalism, so much as it is how do you feel about that belief, that kind of like up and down axis. And so in some, you could be an atheist who's an apatheist, and you could be a theist who's an apatheist, right? Because we're talking about the how do you feel about those beliefs. And then there's another little added element for believers here too, because the Bible does talk about an indifference towards God. Psalmist says, the fool says, in their heart, there is no God. And I believe that what they're latching onto is this idea that people might assent to God, they'll believe that God exists, but they don't actually care about what his existence means for their life, especially their behavior or their morality. Or you can get into this kind of rote, bland kind of life of empty worship, which is, you see the indictment against the priest class in in Malachi, for example. So I would say that's like a kissing cousin to apathyism, because at least you have enough to call to repentance, right? If you believe these things, which you say you do, and I really sincerely believe you believe in God, you believe his son, you believe his spirit, then shouldn't that affect the way that you feel about him? And then you can have that kind of a conversation. An apatheist, you go, you believe about God? Yeah, I believe God. Well, tell me, why Why doesn't that have any other relevance in your life? They take a step back and they go, you know, I guess I don't really care. It's a more fundamental, it's a deeper apathy, I should say, than we might experience commonly in the church. So what do you do to open up a conversation about the gospel. You're talking to somebody, you realize this person seems to be an apatheist, a a theological shoegazer. And so you have this person here that you're talking to and you're trying to get them interested in the gospel or even to care about the gospel. It's not even so much interested as do you even care? How do you try to open the door and turn that conversation to get this person even to care about a conversation about the gospel? Yeah. So this, I think, requires from us a rethinking of our strategic approach to evangelism, especially as it relates to apologetics. So we come out of a heritage of rich philosophy when it comes to arguments for God's existence. If you go to seminary, you go to a Christian higher education institution, you learn all sorts of philosophical arguments for God's existence, like the cosmological argument or the moral argument, these types of things. If you're not familiar with some of those, mere Christianity is a great introduction for the first time to kind of be exposed to these arguments. The problem is apatheists, again, don't care. It doesn't matter how compelling you think the argument is. I, I just find that irrelevant or indifferent to me. So I think what we need to do is take a step back and recognize that in previous generations, we assumed interest in these conversations 
but we can no longer assume that. We actually start in a deficit of interest. And so, like you're pointing out, we do need to capture some kind of interest. And I found, just practically speaking, that one of the modes of kind of apologetic approach to evangelism that has been very helpful has been what's been termed cultural apologetics. So this is not presenting the Christian faith as primarily reasonable, which it is, but as primarily desirable. And so classic approaches to apologetics and cultural approaches to apologetics are not meant to be pitted against one another. It's just like an EQ board. What are you turning up more and turning down less, right? So I advocate turning up more the desirability of the Christian faith in answering these really deep questions that every human being has about what is beautiful, what is meaningful, where does one find their value, what brings me happiness and joy and love, these types of conversations. Nobody's disinterested (laughs) in what makes them happy, what brings them joy, for example. Very few people are disinterested in the pursuit of love. Even if they think they're disinterested in the pursuit of love, at some level, they're loving something and they're looking to be loved by something or someone. So kind of going into those arenas of conversations and then pointing back to the gospel. Because in those conversations, you're not actually starting with God, you're starting with that individual, and then you're working your way to God. Whereas approaches in the past started with God and then worked their way to the individual. So I know that's kind of abstract, but that's where we'd start, I suppose. Our friend Josh Shatro, who's been on here a couple of different times, he, and I think he's right on this, is really trying to retrieve Augustine, recognizing that Augustine of Hippo much of what he does, even though it can't be directly dropped from the 4th and 5th century to today, nobody's we're not saying that, but there are aspects of Augustine's thought that are very relevant to that. You mentioned loving, and of course, Augustine in the Confessions, he speaks of lover of loving that I was. In other words, he was loving the experience of love itself rather than recognizing what love points to. And that's really what a lot of what you're doing there. Josh Shatro does that in his book, Telling a Better Story, in which he really wrestles with and really looks at this notion of how do we take the longings, the desires that people have inevitably that they have, unavoidably they have, and how do we draw those out to point them to the gospel? And I love that analogy you use there of the EQ. I've not heard that before, but I really like that one of where you're saying, you're not saying this is bad and we got to turn this off. We're just saying we need to do a little more of this and a little less of this today. And I think you're exactly correct on that. And Augustine gives us such a model for that. Yeah. And something that Josh and I think other really good contemporary apologetic writers do is really focus on the importance of remembering constantly that you're sitting across from a person, another human being, rather than a brain with a bunch of concepts that you need to correct and all that kind of stuff. And and so that EQ illustration is so important because in order to do that properly, you have to be paying attention to the person in front of you. Like you have to be aware of them as an individual and what it is that's beneath the surface, beneath what they're saying, beneath what they're struggling with. And that's just so important. How did you come across, like how did this become an interest and eventually a book and whatnot? Like what's the story behind all that? Yeah, so I tell this story 
in the book, actually. It was kind of the first time where the light bulb clicked for me that this kind of apathyism exists in Western culture. And oh boy, what do we do about it? So years ago, I lived in England, in Cambridge, and I was only going to be there for three years. And I thought to myself, I should really steward this time well and have the kinds of gospel conversations that I would want. Hear the Lord say, like, you did well done, good and faithful servant. You weren't there for very long. And I was getting frustrated because the conversations were going nowhere. It was always either the kind of the new atheistic, you don't know what you're talking about, it's superstition. It was great psychological crutch for our grandparents during World War II, but we, we moved beyond that. Or this kind of just sloughing the conversation off. And I couldn't figure out why. Why are these conversations not going anywhere? I just assumed that it was because people were indifferent towards me, or they just didn't want to have the conversation. And over the course of a few months, I would go on walks in the city. And in the center of the city, there's a big market square there. And for like four or five months, there was a guy who set up a booth who was a Muslim, and he was uh, proselytizing. He had all this literature that was set out. And the marketplace is very busy all the time, lots of people coming and going. And week after week, I would see him like trying to pass out pamphlets and people just threw them in the trash bin nearby. And so one day I just felt the prompting like, well, why don't you talk to him? <laughs> so I bought him a cup of coffee, walked over and said, hey, I just figured you could use the conversation in coffee. doesn't look like things are going very well for you. He found out I was a Christian and then he said, oh, okay, so you, you can empathize with me. You know where I'm coming from. And when he said that, I initially balked. I'm not trying to convert anybody to Islam. So no, I, I don't know where you're coming from. But what he explained was like, no, 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 we both have a belief in God. At least we both believe in the supernatural. At least we believe there's a creator. But none of these people care. It's not that they don't believe. It's that they don't even care. And that was the first time I had noticed a number of things one, the commonality that a Christian might have with somebody who holds at least, at a minimum, supernatural belief. But then two, okay, that's why my conversations aren't going anywhere. I had all of these arguments lined up and ready. I would go to debates and I was reading apologetic literature and philosophical literature, and it always felt like to no avail. And in that moment, I finally realized that it's not that they disagree, it's that they just don't care about it. So that kind of started a journey of how in the world do Christians even begin to approach this? And then when it years later, when it came time to do PhD at Southern Seminary, as you two are very well aware, they make you do a minor. <laughs> and so I thought, well, why don't I do mine in areas that I can kind of take the time to think through this question? And then through that series of those seminars in philosophy and apologetics, it kind of gave rise to that book. And, and also just thinking through what we could do and putting it to practice in conversation, not just thinking about it by myself in, in my home office or something, like actually having conversations with people I think don't care about the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and helping raise awareness for this as a, an increasing problem of what it's going to eventually mean to live in a post-Christian society, because post-Christian isn't going to mean no one believes. Everyone is is atheist, and everyone's hostile about it, And because that's plenty of that is going to be folks who just, they don't care. There's no room for thought of anything supernatural in their life. Yeah, and I found that that's been one of my favorite responses to the book has been, everybody is aware that this is out there. They don't have the term 
But once you get the term, once you get it kind of defined, okay, now we can hang hats and we can figure out how to approach this for the gospel. So raising awareness is definitely one of the hopes, and even for conversations like this. Hmm. That's fascinating. Something that's also fascinating to me. So this is, you and I share an interest. You've researched extensively and written now about Mormonism, right? the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, which is also been kind of a long time fascination of mine that I've every once in a while spend time reading on and digging into. And I'm just wondering, how did that interest form? How did you enter into that space? Yeah, I get asked the question all the time, and I still don't have a good answer. I've always just kind of been interested. I, I, Same I tell here. a story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just, Same. it just always was. I can identify one memory. The first time I was ever exposed to Mormonism was in the office of my grandfather in his home. He had a Book of Mormon that he had purchased on a trip to Salt Lake City in the 1970s. And he was out of the office. I snuck in, I was poking around in his books, and I pulled the Book of Mormon down and he pushed it back on the shelf and he said, Don't ever have anything to do with them. I mean, that's like telling me not to push the red button and then yeah, leave exactly. It's a very so, never so ending why? story moment there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so why? Why? What's wrong with it? What's what's going on? And so it, that just kind of sparked an interest at a young age. And over the course of years, getting to not only understand doctrinally the beliefs of the Latter-day Saint tradition, but also their history, which is absolutely fascinating, and then their people developing relationships with Latter-day Saints, those that are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Utah, but the broader LDS Restoration tradition. So those in like members of the Community of Christ. And then for my dissertation, I focused on an even smaller group of breakaway, trying to understand the Latter-day Saint tradition as a whole. So if you know anything about the story, it's absolutely fascinating. And it's a well that keeps on giving. Like I, I can't stop being fascinated by it personally. So, <laughs> well, yeah. So some Christians might think, and, and I've run into these folks when teaching comparative theology courses in, in the local church, but some Christians might think that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is simply another Christian denomination, right? Like Presbyterians or Baptists, just a denomination that they know a lot less about. When you run into those folks, how do you usually explain the biggest, the most essential differences between Mormons and historic Orthodox Christians? Yeah, well, I would start by saying the earliest Latter-day Saints themselves did not see their movement as being a part of a, a Christian denomination. They weren't a breakaway from Christianity. They weren't a reformation of Christianity. They were a restoration is the term that they use. So all of Christianity had gone wayward in some form or fashion and needed a complete kind of a hard reset by retrieving lost doctrines and practices. And this retrieval, Latter-day Saints believe, began with a man named Joseph Smith in revelations that he was given through a series of visions and visionary experiences, and most famously, his claim to recover ancient scripture, which he translates into the Book of Mormon. So Latter-day Saints themselves then would not have thought of themselves as a, a different denomination. It defeats the entire point of their movement. And so, no, they wouldn't even think of themselves as just another branch. But really, there's a lot that can be said about what differentiates the Latter-day Saint tradition from traditional Christianity. But 
at the end of the day, all of those differences, for as arrayed as they are, they all stem from one place, which is the issue of authority. So as an evangelical Protestant, our highest earthly authority is that which is given to us by the Holy Spirit in the Bible, the Old and New Testament. For Latter-day Saint, however, the highest earthly authority is consolidated in the office of a living prophet, so somebody who actively speaks for God. So their canon is open and endless, whereas for traditional Christians, and Protestants in specific, the canon is closed at the apostolic age. So any of the kind of doctrinal innovations within the Latter-day Saint tradition that strike traditional Christians as very strange at first, for example, baptism of the dead, the eternality of marriage, temple rituals, and those types of things, you can trace a line directly back to the first LDS prophet, who was Joseph Smith. And his kind of like self-vision as a restorer of these lost truths. So long story short, authority. Authority is ultimately the difference. There's a sense in which we can talk about the Roman Catholic development of doctrine, right? Which is very different than what we're talking about. But in Roman Catholic tradition, when we see a teaching or a pope say something that on its surface seems to go against what was said, you know, blah, 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 like, you know, way back when, there's always an explanation for how that's not the case. But it seems that there are all types of teachings from various prophets in the history of the LDS church that come across as corrections. Just a, we used to believe this and now we do not. We, in fact, we believe the opposite. And I'm just wondering how, when sitting in a conversation and bringing up this 180 degree turn, what the explanation is, right? How does that affect a view of authority? Like where does such authority come from? And what's the value of authority if the next guy technically just can come in and say something different? Yeah, so that's a great question. So there, there is some parallel, I think, between kind of the LDS and the Roman Catholic conceptions of authority in that both of them would agree they deny sola scriptura at the end of the day. Roman Catholicism, however, if the Pope and the magisterium or tradition is making some kind of doctrinal statement, from their perspective, those three scripture, tradition, and the magisterium, must be in concord. There can't be some kind of sour note in that harmony. And to a certain degree, Latter-day Saints as well don't believe that a prophet can come and just undo everything from the past, right? He he has a handbrake, and that that is the prophet can't declare tomorrow that God doesn't exist. The prophet can't declare tomorrow that Joseph Smith was a, a fallen or false prophet, that the Book of Mormon is not scripture. So, so there are some things, like it's not like carte blanche, right? But at the same time, you, you do bring up a point. So there might be a belief that a prophet is kind of exploring or playing with that later prophets come back and say, no, that's not quite right. One that comes to mind is Brigham Young's doctrine, the ontological relationship between God and Adam which is a thought that he played with when they first got out to Utah in the 1850s and later prophets. So actually people during his day were kind of like, Brigham, I don't think that's right, but you're the prophet, so we're going to listen. What Latter-day Saints would say, and they're right, is those beliefs were not canonized in their church. So even though he was saying them, let's say, at a general conference, which is a pretty big deal, and that's pretty authoritative, it's not ultimately authoritative, especially if, if prophets came by, by afterwards. So the work of prophecy for Latter-day Saints is a lot 
more fluid and messier than it might be from a Protestant perspective that's looking back at the Old and New Testament and reading, thus saith the Lord, X, and X happened, and that was it. So for understanding authority, it's a bit more nebulous, I'll say that, at least at the street level with Latter-day Saints. So I found that one of the things that I notice with anybody who's doing apologetics or comparative religions, things like that, the fields that you're interested in, the fields that you've studied, there's almost always a story of how they became interested in those things. What was it that brought this about, that there was some challenge in their life or some point at which they doubted or something like that, that they really struggled with? And as a result of that, pursuing this. Is that the case for you? And if so, what is your story? How did you become interested in some of these areas to do with apologetics, comparative religions, and things like that? Yeah. So for me, it was, at the end of the day, the pursuit of truth. And in a kind of a post-truth culture that we live in, having been captured by the message of the gospel, there was something in me that wanted to know, A, if it's going to be true, it's got to be true everywhere in every aspect of life. So if these competing voices have anything to input, I'd like to know. But then B, once I became convinced of the particularity and exclusivity of the gospel, I wanted to understand what prevents or inhibits people from an understanding of the gospel as it was preached by the New Testament apostles, for example. And in that effort, it's kind of, I see a really tight relationship between the Great Commission and the Greatest Commandment in that it's impossible to fulfill the Great Commission if you don't first obey the Great Commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you don't take the time to understand what your neighbors believe, what they find important, and what their desires are, and their hopes and their fears, then how can you effectively communicate the gospel to them? Now, of course, you can proclaim the message, and the Holy Spirit does His work in people's hearts, but the intimate knowledge with which Jesus knew the Samaritan woman at the well is so compelling to me as a model for approaching somebody with different beliefs that He first cares about her before the message He delivers. It's not one or the other, and I think this is the mistake people make, right? It's either we have to care without communicating the gospel, or we have to communicate the gospel without caring. And that's just not what we see, especially in that example in John. And so I wanted to emulate that as I became called to ministry. I wanted to be the kind of pastor and example for people that loved people and communicated to them, articulated to them truth. And so that starts with understanding what people believe and and why they believe it. Well, to learn more about Kyle Bashirs, go to his website, kylebashirs.com. Bashirs is spelled B-E-S-H-E-A-R-S, kylebashirs.com. And go and take a look at his book, Apathyism, from B&H Academic, outstanding book that I encourage you to get as you seek to find ways to share the gospel with the people around you. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us today on the Apologetics Podcast. Yeah, thanks guys for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're interested in supporting the Apologetics Podcast, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug.
To listen to more episodes or to learn more about the two of us, take a look at our website at theapologeticspodcast.com. Also, if you're interested in learning more about apologetics, ministry, and leadership in urban contexts, you might enjoy the Urban Ministry Podcast. Go to urban.sbts.edu to learn more about this podcast. My name is Timothy Paul Jones. My co-host is Garrick Bailey, and we are already looking forward to joining you next time on the next exciting episode of The Apologetics Podcast. Podcast.